Hi, it's Mike. Sometimes you hear podcasters say, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Does it? I think it might. Why not try it? Please follow us and do recommend the show to others. And if you can, leave a review in your own mind, in your own hearts, or especially on one of those big websites that keeps the reviews and shows them to the rest of the public. It's Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Former President Donald Trump licked his wounds in the only way he knows how by lashing out before backers at his golf resort. Not only was the DA who's currently charging him with crimes criticized in a fit of either 3D chess or infantile frustration, Trump picked a fight with another of the prosecutors tasked with investigating the former president. This lunatic special prosecutor named Jack Smith, I wonder what it was prior to a change, who others of his ilk say he's even worse than they are, is only looking at Trump, yet Joe Biden took massive amounts more documents, even removed many boxes to Chinatown. Donald Trump there pulling from the Jerry Lewis School of Oratory. Chinatown! Ladies! The interesting part of that clip, to me, was not the boffo ending. It was the somewhat muttered establishing shot. Jack Smith, if that is his real name, This is a running gag Trump has been working on hard, but you'd have to be a true aficionado of the deeper cuts to pick up on it. Jack Smith is the highly decorated former U.S. attorney who spent time at the World Court in the Netherlands investigating and prosecuting war crimes. Before that, he was head of the Department of Justice's Public Integrity Unit. While there, he even busted a CIA officer, Jeffrey Sterling, for leaking to the New York Times. Now, you would think that Trump would like that. It was punishing the leakers. And no one knows just how much all the leakers are hurting us. And the leaker was in the CIA. So that's taking on the deep state. And the New York Times objected to all of this. The failing New York Times. So short of locking her up, This prosecution should be the Trump dream prosecution. But once the prosecutorial intent is aimed at Trump, Trump attacks. And the thrust of this attack seems to be Jack Smith's anodyne name. On Truth Social, Trump truthed, speaking of leaks, special prosecutor Jack Smith parentheses, what did his name used to be, leaked massive amounts of information to the Washington Compost. Trump is either sowing doubt, which will of course be reaped on 4chan and among QAnon, or just making a funny joke that few seem to be getting right now about Jack Smith and his anonymous type name. He tweets about this a lot. Sorry, truths about it a lot. What is going on? Is it real? Did Jack Smith really change his name? I investigated. Right now, I'm staring at a page in the 1987 Liverpool High School yearbook, The Hiawathan. There, there is Jack Smith, varsity football, varsity baseball. I looked up the football team. It's right after no-fault season for tennis and boys' soccer kicks off super season. There, under fate said no to 86 Warriors, is Jay Smith. Looks like a young Jack Smith. Real name John, by the way. I found out. That is his real name. But, you know, listed in the Hiawathan as Jack. And where did I find the Hiawathan? It was neatly organized on the internet, not casually tossed in some box on an office floor. Let that be a lesson to you, Mr. President. 
Is Jack Smith his real name? Yes, it is. But his real title is Special Counsel Smith, and there are surely smarter figures to have sport with. On the show today, Donald Trump, as you heard, was in fine fettle, and democracy as a whole is in fine shape. Or maybe its shape is more like, uh, it's fine. That is the subject of the spiel. But first, while we might have a hard time focusing on slow-moving news stories, the fact is sea levels are rising around the world, and eventually millions of Americans will either have to wall off the ocean, very hard, or move away from it. Charleston, South Carolina, is one of the places facing the realities of rising seas. And my next guest, former Obama administration official Susan Crawford, has just written a new book, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm, which talks about who will lose as the ocean closes in. Susan Crawford is up next. Charleston is one of America's great cities. It is a treasure, it is a gem, and it is extremely vulnerable. The book, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm, gives you a hint about why, and it is written by an interesting person to write this book, Susan Crawford, who is the John A. Riley Clinical Professor at Harvard Law School, and has a history and expertise in things like the telecom industry and working with the FCC, but now she cast her sights on the city of Charleston. Welcome to The Gist. Glad to be here, Mike. How did you come to this issue in this city? I went down to Charleston to interview Mayor Joe Riley, who had been the mayor for 40 years. He was called America's favorite mayor, and he made a huge reputation for himself and for Charleston by redeveloping essentially a city into a jewel for tourism and beauty. Everybody wants to visit Charleston. And I was curious about that. And I was gonna talk to him actually about fiber infrastructure. You're right, I spent a lot of years writing about fiber and internet access. A local journalist tipped me off and said, you gotta ask Riley about the water. The water, I said. He said, yeah. Just ask him about the water. So I asked him about flooding in Charleston. And Joe Riley, who's a very charming man, dapper, well-dressed, very well-spoken, he kind of climbed up. He didn't want to talk about it. All he would say was that it was going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. He'd already stepped down from office at the end of 2015. Well, it seemed to me that there was a story there. And so I started tracking down that story over the last now almost five years coming to Charleston, interviewing people, following engineers as they roamed around Charleston, trying to understand Charleston's position in American history. And most importantly, I was introduced to a host of black residents of Charleston who told me what it's like to be black there. And I got this opportunity to weave these stories together because Charleston stands at the intersection of race and rising sea levels in America. And it's a very useful, Tough to talk about a city as being useful, but it's a really good um, crystallization of American tendencies in one beautiful, easy to understand, geographically anyway, place. And so what are, give us literally the lay of the land in Charleston, especially along racial lines. 
Well, let's start with the topography and then we'll move on to the racial divisions there. So it's extraordinarily low-lying. The, the beautiful peninsula that most tourists dream of when they're planning to visit Charleston uh, stands between two rivers, the Cooper and the Ashley River. The bottom part of that peninsula, most of those historic houses are no more than five feet above sea level. And most of that peninsula was built on fill over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. Over the last 30 years, Charleston, the city, has expanded through Joe Riley's efforts um, by annexation of marshy territories that spread out from that peninsula. So it's like a little Manhattan Peninsula plus a bunch of boroughs on the outside. There is no upland condition. There are no hills in the Charleston metro region. So that's the topology. Um, Charleston is a place where uh, it's central to the slave trade in American history. And its economy was heavily based on uh, har harvesting rice and indigo over the centuries up to the Civil War. So after the Civil War ended, Charleston became a magnet for free black residents. So fast forward to uh, 1970, it was that lower, beautiful lower peninsula was 75% black. But over the years since then, with dramatic gentrification, development and displacement, that peninsula has become almost entirely white the book focuses on the misery that lies ahead for lower income residents of Charleston, both white and black, most of whose, whose wealth is in their homes or their renters, uh, who will have nowhere to go. And there is no plan to help uh, gradually with great respect with a transition to higher, safer, well-connected and affordable places. Right. So the plan, when we hear about the plans, maybe we think about seawalls or maybe we think about drainage. Or if you think about a, a city, famous U.S. city that's built in a bowl like New Orleans, we think about uh, dams and levees. But you consider all that and you talk to the experts who you know, know about this and maybe plan for it in their own cities um, the Dutch, for instance, the Dutch come to Charleston, which is like Tom Brady visiting a flag football team. And the Dutch say, yeah, this is much worse off than Amsterdam is. But the, I guess the solution, the only solution that you're an advocate of is, is what's called sea retreat, just leaving. I like to call a strategic relocation. Okay. We, need, we need to be optimistic about this. It will be a giant need up and down the coast as uh, sea levels will rapidly accelerate beginning in about 2050, and the east coast of the U.S. will see a velocity of rays that is three to four times what the rest of the world will have. Uh, so it'll happen very quickly, and there'll be a lot of water slopping up on the coast. No seawall uh, could be built that would protect all the residents. Right now, Charleston is working with the Army Corps on a seawall that would shield just that lower half of the very rich peninsula. That wouldn't protect 90% of the residents of Charleston and also is built only to protect against storm surge, not against the persistent flooding that's coming already to Charleston shores just from high tides and rainfall. So you couldn't build a wall at a reasonable cost to protect everybody and you wouldn't want to. Who wants to live in a walled world? Actually, what we should be doing and what the experts are talking about behind closed doors is a mass, very well-planned, 
movement of people with a lot of support and a lot of respect and consultation over decades to safer places. What percentage of the East Coast will be in this situation by 2050 do you and scientists estimate? We're uncertain as the exact percentage, and I don't want to guess. I I think we're going to see about 13 million Americans who will be displaced by coastal sea level rise over the next decades, not centuries. And that's a lot of people. And so far, uh, we have a very, very small set of buyout programs that have served no more than 45,000 people, homes. This is already happening. We are carrying out some very small buyouts that in no way can match the scale of the uh, problem and the assistance that's needed um, to move through these next decades with any modicum of decency and respect for the people involved. How much has the cost been to relocate the 45,000? It's already been billions of dollars to move those people out of the way. So this is indeed a giant expense. There's also an opportunity here to build some new places that are uh, better places for people to live on higher and safer ground. So 13 million is 300 times about 45,000. So if it costs billions of dollars, I don't know, we might be talking about, I don't know how many billion, three, four, we might be talking about in the trillions. This seems to be the largest undertaking or if it were to be a line item in the budget, would certainly be the largest uh, other than the, or actually a trillion is larger than military spending, depending on how you count it in a year. It, it seems to be, at least if the government were to undertake it, a crippling cost, which is, I guess, why the 40-year elected mayor didn't want to talk about it. How should we think about the costs? We can pay for what we decide we can afford and care about. We know that as a society. What we're also facing right now, the fact that about $200 billion of coastal real estate is overvalued. Study came out a couple of weeks ago saying that. We're facing a collapse in real estate values driven by alignment of the risk with reality. <laughs> and so the insurance aid, uh, world knows about this. The bankers know about it. The signal hasn't gotten down to the real estate market, which is still hot for coastal markets all around the country. We're sort of setting up a game of musical chairs where some people will try to exit before the collapse happens. We are facing a dramatic uh, cliff along these lines. It would be far better to plan ahead and uh, try to rescue some of that value through government programs that migrate it into internal building programs. Well, I think that we could, pro- it's probably true that we can afford much of what we prioritize, though mm-hmm. not all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and we haven't cured cancer, although we've made great strides, and I don't know what else we prioritize. It's not like we've won our various wars, even though we spend a lot of money. But my question is how realistically will we prioritize it until we see the actual effects? Until it's not models and it's not the latest ICPP report, until it's actual, maybe smaller cities disappearing under a deluge. And once that happens, just knowing how humans think, okay, we got to do this, won't it be too late? You know, you're probably right. Humans are very, uh, you know, we're, we're not good at change. We have to see something in order to make any changes. And even the disasters in Pakistan, the flooding of half the country there, none of that seems to actually penetrate the American consciousness. It would take 
uh, disasters along the American coast. But here's the thing, 40% of Americans live in coastline counties and about half the country's GDP comes from those coastline counties. So the effect of not doing anything it will be felt very strongly along our coasts and will affect our economy profoundly. So my hope is that the signal will reach the policymakers sooner rather than later. Right now, there is no one in the federal government waking up every day and worrying about this giant issue. It's it's too big to think about. We have uh, you know 13 federal agencies worrying in various ways about disaster recovery, but no one leading any thinking about planning ahead for the future. Yeah. It's uh, troubling, and but I do come back to, if you think about every, uh, your statement about what we prioritize we could spend on, I can't think of anything that we as a society, and maybe no people in the history of society, have prioritized a well-predicted eventuality. It's very hard to prioritize, really, just the most robust, excellent model will not get us to spend trillions of dollars, let alone to get most people to even leave their homes. Are there any, is there anything we could do in the meantime? Is there anything we could do to mitigate what you are talking about is a disaster just a couple decades in the making? Sure. There are lots of things we, we can do. You're right. Remember, Don't Look Up, the movie that just came out recently? Yeah. yeah big, big problem come, coming to the country. No one seems to be able to cope with it. We could, uh, there are a lot of financial things we could do that would help a lot. We could um, give people uh, a, a scope of years to move away and have their mortgages be paid off in that time. We could change uh, building codes and zoning regulations along the coast. There are a lot of local things that could be done to say no born building here. We could uh, gradually decommission roads and other infrastructure running along the coast. It'll be expensive, but we could do that. And just begin with every local policy we have to ramp downwards towards um, returning coastal areas to the marsh where they came from. And uh, But doing it slowly rather than quickly will save us a ton of money. It'll be much more expensive to wait until the cataclysm hits. Well, if you say a society can spend on what it prioritizes, another rule of thumb is that a person's economic outlook will be greatly influenced by their livelihood depending on a certain set of circumstances. Right. And in this instance, it's not just a groupthink or it's not just uh, the heuristics of thinking what has happened in the past will happen in the future. The vast majority of people we're talking about who are in uh, an area of potential flooding, their livelihood or their existence, their economic well-being, everything short of collapse, absolutely depends on you being wrong. It depends. They're Almost all of their worth is tied up in their homes, and their homes are anchored to this ground that will be washed away. Uh, I just get back to theories of change and changing people's minds. The You could have a raft of climate scientists and Harvard professors telling them this is wrong, but with the incentives as they are, 
how can, how will any individual change? How can any government entity change? How can we possibly change things? We change things by making them visible and by communicating clearly. So right now, the federal government is not communicating clearly about the risks to uh, the coast of the United States. There isn't a single standard for how they measure sea level rise. The maps are terrible, all of that. There is no one leading on this issue that would begin to raise it. Luckily for me, this cataclysm is already happening. People have seen video of North Carolina houses falling into the surf. Uh, they are noticing, this isn't just about our grandchildren in, of the future. Grandchildren right now are being affected by coastal changes in America and are seeing uh, the disappearance of land and the rising seas all around them. So it is beginning to become visible. We need more images. We need better communication. We need leadership at all levels. But when those three elements are in place, we are actually capable of changing. Well, who's supposed to communicate? Who are the voices that a South Carolinian might listen to? Is it Nikki Haley? Is it Lindsey Graham? Is it um, even the current mayor of uh, Charleston, John Tecklenburg, who you talk about, who's, you know, from a wealthy family and glad handler? Was it the last 40-year mayor? Uh, I understand that this book, I mean, this book was very compelling. I find the scientists compelling. seems like no one in South Carolina, you know, 25% of the population might be listening to such sources and 75% might be listening to some mixture of climate denialism and even if it's climate acceptance, you know, being so beholden to the real estate industry that they're not going to possibly want to radically change. Human beings are capable of enormous self-deception and there is denialism and boosterism up and down the coast of the United States. You're absolutely right. But Americans, you know, don't count Americans out. They are wise. They have common sense. It's a non-political issue that the sea is going to be eating away at flooding a lot of coastal property and that uh, wisdom and the future of your economic life if you're uh, younger than you and I are, will really depend on not investing in these areas. So maybe disinvestment may be the direction that things go. You're right, I'm not seeing particular uh, leaders at this moment who are willing to speak up about this, but they're gonna come and this book is aimed at encouraging them. Is there precedent anywhere in the world where there was this dynamic, there was this denialism, and then they got it and they radically changed at a great cost to themselves and their society? People often talk about uh, Indonesia moving its capital, Jakarta, to yeah. higher ground. So that's a, that's an example. I read the statistics about how grand a project that was in your book, though. Right. Uh, I, the sub part of that story is that the, they're planning to move only the government and its civil servants, not the 10 million people that live around Jakarta. They won't be moved. Right. But the leaders got the idea that it wouldn't make sense to keep having their capital there. Uh, New Zealand and Canada have much more um, advanced relocation programs than we do. In Canada, if your place is flooded uh, uh, chronically, that's it. You don't rebuild. They, you're going to move and they're going to um, decommission the area where you were. We are surrounded by sensible countries that are capable of thinking along these lines. It's just it's not discussed in America at a high level, um, but it should be. And I'm convinced that this issue will become livelier and livelier as the storms are made more visible to Americans and as the um, reality uh, becomes too blatant to ignore. 
Yeah, so I think about New England. This to me is a, they're a guiding light. I hate to compare U.S. to New Zealand. Sorry, did I say New England? I think about New Zealand. They're some sort of guiding light in a way. Of course, they're a homogeneous country of uh, just a few million people. Right. And they're not tearing each other apart, although uh, a little bit, maybe more than they used to be. So yeah. their plan, which runs 200 pages, um, is the first ever climate adaption plan. The climate change minister, so that's that's something, that's an innovation, we don't have one of those, yeah. told reporters that 70,000 coastal homes were at risk from rising seas. But, and I'll quote from the AP, the six-year plan, which runs 200 pages, comes up short on some important details, including how much the changes will cost and who will and who will pay. Right. So <laughs> this is the model. And the model is extremely deficient, I would say. Look, we built the Hoover Dam. We built mm -hmm. the interstate highway system. We built the transcontinental railway. We are capable of great things. The Tennessee Valley Authority goes on and on. We may have lost the habit of uh, taking big industrial policy moves, but we're capable of it. And there is no particular constraint to good planning here except the power of the status quo, which is significant. I grant you that. Um, but when real people start making real noises about this, and they already are, it's already happening, uh, we will see movement. And the reason I chose Charleston for this story is that it does live in people's minds. It's such a beautiful place. They dream of it. And especially white tourists are visiting it in droves, 7 million of them a year. If those 7 million people just woke up and realized what's heading towards Charleston and were able to accept it, that's a change. And we're just going to have to keep making those moves all over the coasts and changing laws and programs to a much more holistic system of thinking about the future of this country. Susan Crawford is the author of Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed this. And oh wait, I almost forgot. Do you like Succession? It's a popular TV show. I wrote about it for my Substack. Oh wait, oh wait, did you know I had a Substack? It's called Pesca Profundities. Uh, yesterday or Monday, I posted a version of the spiel I did last week about widening the aperture on who we consider when it comes to police killings. And I went all cultural, writing about succession and podcasts about succession and which ones got a key plot point, right? Even if you don't, but you know someone who does, you can check out Pesca Profundities. Well, it's different from subscribe.mikepesca.com, which is Pesca Plus and the Just Add Free. I don't want to confuse you. I do this writing thing on this Substack, Pesca Profundities. It's succession talk today. Check it out. Should you be so inclined? That's the hard sell. That's for me. And now the spiel. Yesterday was a fine day for democracy. Fine meaning good or thin as in hair or somewhere above bad but below grand. First, fine is good. Liberal Democrats won in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, the Chicago's mayor's race, and Denver's looking interesting. In the mayor's runoff there, Mike Johnston is the top vote getter, and Kelly Bruff has enough to make the runoff. Johnston, a progressive state senator, 
advocates for the homeless and affordable housing in a city where homelessness is a major concern, sort of like every city in the United States. He did unsuccessfully run for governor in 2018, Senate in 2020, and ran for the mayor's office three times. This is his third in five years. Go, Mike. Bruff, former chief of staff for John Hickenlooper, is a mainstream Democrat aligned with the business community and some progressive groups. We wish them well. In Chicago, Paul Vallis, a 69-year-old white guy, lost to Brandon Johnson, a 47-year-old black guy. Yeah, 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 I know it's about so much more than age and demographics, police and policies and visions, and just not as conservative as Vallis is. Johnson sold voters on the idea that he was younger, not much selling needed to be done there, and more aligned with them and their interests, and that Vallis was kind of a Republican. Vallis hit the crime issue hard, but Johnson hit him back by noting that Vallis has personally expressed concern and opposition to abortion. And Vallis also has a history of privatizing schools. This was not the general election, but it is Chicago, so this was essentially the general election. A truly fine result was Janet Protosiewicz defeating Dan Kelly in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race that turned into a proxy vote on abortion. Oh sure, no Supreme Court judge could possibly campaign on a promise to deliver a specific result, but it was entirely clear that a vote for Kelly was a vote against legal abortion in the state, and a vote for Protosiewicz was a vote for women's rights to reproductive health. Also on the line, voting rights, legislative districts, pretty much all the nitty-gritty of politics that judges are supposed to be above. It's fine that Protosiewicz won, less than fine that $45 million was spent to secure a specific constitutional interpretation, but the Constitution is a political document, is it not? And these are political outcomes. They went to a voting booth and engaged in politics, did they not? So maybe I say better the honesty of just running on specific outcomes and maybe paying $45 million to get that outcome. Well, anyway, almost half of the $45 million was just spent to negate the other candidate's preferred outcome. So it's really a wash. Hey, look at it this way. Steven Spielberg gave $20,000. You want to say the guy who made E.T. can't give, what, 0.0001% of his net worth to ensure that women in Wisconsin have abortion rights and further ensure that the Wisconsin Supreme Court does not toss out election results thanks to Italian satellites monkeying with the actual tally. I don't want to say that. I'm not going to say that to Steven Spielberg. I kind of like the Fablemans. I mean, it was fine. And therefore, if we do allow Spielberg to make his preferences known via money, we got to allow the Sargento cheese family to donate cumulatively I think it comes to about $200,000 to the Dan Kelly campaign and the Wisconsin GOP. Sargento, sliced cheese that's no more tasty and no less affordable than Borden, Cabot, Applegate. Cheeses that have a strong stake in a cow's right to moose, but no known political stance on a woman's right to choose. And the finally fine was a fine, meaning, okay, I guess, result for democracy in that the former president of the United States was served notice that he's not above the law. But it is not entirely clear if the law that he's supposedly not above should have been a misdemeanor or a felony. Sure, every Republican is incentivized to rail against Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg as a Soros-backed prosecutor which is a true description, just not a totalizing one. But I find it 
interesting, disturbing, that there are zero Republicans, even ones with credibility like Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski, who voted to convict Trump in the second impeachment, who are cheering on Bragg's prosecution or even acknowledging that this crime should be prosecuted as a felony. The left is also, just now, by the way, questioning how solid the indictment is. Vox, Vox, ran a piece The dubious legal theory at the heart of the Trump indictment explained the best evidence that Trump really did commit a felony is that Michael Cohen pled guilty and served real jail time for the very act. Then again, Michael Cohen did literally go to the worst law school in America. Cooley Law is an accredited ABA school. The ABA scores it as fine. Now about this, no one is above the law statement. If you said it about Trump, if you take solace in it, yeah, that's true. Ask yourself, do you apply this dictum to every lengthy jail term for small-scale possession of marijuana, to a 20-year sentence for shoplifting in a three-strikes-and-you're-out situation? Wait, I thought no one was above the law. Oh, well, in that case, you figure, the overriding principle is something like proportionality but not in Trump's case. Remember, Justice, she's blind. She's got the blindfold, but she's also got the scales. Trump's not above the law or shouldn't be, but the law should not be put above his actions. You know, I've made no judgment on this. That is for the real jurists. I am convinced there was a crime, but also open to the idea that it wasn't of the century. Polls show that 60% of the public say the charge was justified. They are right, but they also say the charge was political. They are right again. It's not a contradiction. You know what? It's all political. It's all artificially colored cheese from sliced dairy products to defendants in New York courtrooms. It's all politics. And I say, it's all fine. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, a fine, fine, upstanding man. The Gist's senior producer is Joel Patterson, a fine fellow indeed. Michelle Pesca has done a fine, fine job as VP of Philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. If not, you will be fine. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.